there's this um, line in Psalm 139 which goes something like, where can I flee from your presence? I go to the, you're further than the east is from the east and the west is from the west. Um, I feel that way about Emma. Um, did I manage to hide the plant in there and you didn't find it? Fantastic. I gave that a lot of thought. Um, on the subject of community stuff, um, we have Messy Church on Saturday, uh, so we will be looking for help with that again, and hopefully there'll be some people who we met yesterday who will come along to that. Hi, Morena. My name is James for the purpose of this morning. Jimmy, yeah. I'm speaking to you from a cell in the basement of the high priest's house in Jerusalem, which, frankly, is more of a palace than a house. It doesn't look good for me. Tomorrow, I think they're going to have me stoned. My time has finally run out. The only thing surprising about that is it's taken as long as it has. Both Peter and Paul, those mighty apostles of the gospel that I admire so much, last we heard they were in prison in Rome, and things don't look too good for them either. I'm pleased that I got to live for so long, as it gave me the chance to write my letter to the churches, one church of which, across two millennia of time and a lot of culture, is your church. What you have in those few pages are the distillation of what I think I've learned over 30 years of following Jesus Christ. I want to tell you something of my story, which will give my thoughts in that there a bit of context. But first I want to read to you this bit from the second half of chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness, born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. I'm not sure how I describe what it's like having your much-loved older brother become a miracle-working prophet who runs rings around the great and the good, like my older brother did. Jesus had this amazing wisdom and connection with people. Now, our family was turned upside down by his ministry. I didn't see it coming, but I think... Mum always sort of had the suspicion that he was one day going to do something great for God. As a young man watching all the attention he got, I was a little bit proud, but also really embarrassed by him. 
and afraid because I figured, what if when they come for him, they come for me too? And when he was finally crucified that day, I was utterly crushed. Mum was there and saw it with John, who's like another adopted son to her. Great guy, one of the smartest, godliest men I've ever met. Must have been horrific to watch. I'm glad I wasn't there because even through it all, I I really loved my brother. Mum stayed with Jesus' followers, a bit like a sort of a, a mother hen sort of trying to look after them. And they were all pretty devastated, trying to work out what they were going to do with their lives. I was there with her at the time, and they seemed okay with that. I was trying to get mum to come home with me and get on with our lives. I couldn't see any future with the group, and I don't think many of them could either. It was all over. Then the most amazing, life-transforming, life-changing thing happened to me. My brother... Jesus of Nazareth, who had been violently executed, stood next to me one night. Resurrected, big as life, and he gave me a hug. He was no ghost. I could feel his arms around me. And it was him. He said, hi, Jimmy. No one else ever called me Jimmy, except him. My life dramatically turned on a 10-cent piece. So it was all true. Oh my goodness. Mum just smiled through her tears and I've never been the same since. I've known the most profound sense of peace with God that sustains me still, even though now, 30 years later, I'm facing my own execution in the morning. Well, of course, I threw my lot in with the apostles and the Christ followers and went to live in Jerusalem with them. And it was an amazing time. And our community grew with people turning to Jesus and even our opponents gave us respect. Then Stephen was stoned for proclaiming Jesus and things started getting really ugly. It was our first serious persecution. If I was going to scarper off back to Galilee, well, that would have been the time to do it. But why would I? What, what point or purpose would my life have had if I had done that? We knew all along that our presence and popularity threatened the powers that be. They were just tolerating us at best. Because if we were right, then they and their religious system was a busted flush. It was nothing. It was worthless. It was gone. So again, it was only a matter of time before they came for us. And so they did. Now in that time, that difficult time, I kind of came into my own as a pastor. Peter, the other James, and we're always getting confused between the two of us, and his brother John were always charging around doing new things. And later on, Paul did the same. That was what they were uniquely gifted to do. I was the low-profile guy who looked after home base. And so over time, I became recognised as sort of the pastor leader of the Jerusalem church. And I was happy to sit in the background and do my thing as a shepherd. The only claim to fame that I had was, well, by accident of birth, I was Jesus' younger brother. But then subtly over time, 
my role started to change. You see, one of the big things, and I look back now, the big question that we didn't address early on was, was the Christian church a sort of part of Judaism, part of the religion, like another sort of faction or party or denomination in your lingo, or was it a replacement for it? It's a really big question. Now, the Jerusalem church that I was pastoring was mostly made up of Jewish-born believers and a few converts, so most people were Jewish. So we kept the Jewish festivals, because we've been doing it all our lives, and we'd often worship in the temple, as well as having our Christian meetings on the day of the resurrection, in other words, on Sunday evening, which for us was a working day. Mum and I, Mary, fitted really well into that world. Now our evangelists, like Philip and Peter, they kept pushing the boundaries of who could be in the faith, or, or more accurately, the Holy Spirit through them kept pushing those boundaries. So I found myself as James the diplomat, who mopped the brow of the faithful Jewish Christians who found the idea of a Roman, or God forbid a Samaritan, Christian, quite hard to take. It was enough to make them lose their kebabs. They knew from my pastoring of them that I cared for them. And the apostles trusted me, so I sort of managed the tensions that were in our new movement. I was the Mr. In-Between, the sort of honest broker of the movement. Well, just after Peter's encounter of Cornelius, which is in chapter 10 of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, you call it, but really it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit, those apostles were people every bit as imperfect as any of you, who, like you, followed the light that they'd been shown. Anyway, just after that really earth-shaking news of Peter's vision, word started trickling in from Antioch that Greeks, who had never been Jewish converts at all, were becoming Christians up there. Okay, so now it was getting real. We were still digesting. We were still trying to get our head round the possibility of a Gentile Christian, but it seemed like events a couple of hundred miles away might have overtaken that issue. I was concerned, and all of us were concerned, this controversy could split us and destroy us before we'd really got going on Jesus' commission to reach the whole world with the gospel. So we sent one of our best young wise heads out, a guy called Barnabas, to see what was going on out at the edge of the movement. We were worried, you see, that Gentile Christians would bring with them idolatry, you know, worshipping statues and stuff, religious prostitution, their temples were well known for being pretty racy affairs, and the utter lawlessness for which they were known for, these were the party animals of the ancient world. That wouldn't be good. Now, we didn't hear from Barnabas for ages, and then we heard later he had thrown in his lot with Saul of Tarsus, the man you know as Paul, the ex-Pharisee, and they were out evangelizing up a storm, having a great time. Then one day, Paul, who used to be called Saul, 
and Barnabas showed up at Jerusalem. The church at Antioch, to a couple hundred miles north, had sent them to us because some Jewish Christian prophets, and I knew exactly who these boys were, had been up their way saying that everyone, every new believer, should get circumcised, every male new believer, and they should obey all of Moses' laws in the Old Testament. Well, we couldn't avoid it any longer. The time had come to face this matter head on. They told the whole leadership their story of sharing their faith with Gentiles and the Gentiles responding in large numbers and everything was just, everyone was just a buzz. It was an amazing story to hear. A few leaders said what I knew they would say. Well, that's all very well and good and that's great. But these new believers, they've got to be circumcised and they've got to obey all the laws and all the food laws and all the rest of it. And we talked and we talked and we talked. We tried our best to listen carefully, to, to honour every voice. And then Peter spoke. Peter with his huge mana. And he said what most of us knew. That Gentiles would become followers of Jesus just like we were. His encounter with Cornelius the Roman and his subsequent vision had shown that. But so had Jesus' engagement with the woman at the well that we all knew about. Jesus' engagement with a Syrophoenician woman. Jesus' engagement with Jairus and Jairus' daughter. And there were comments in Isaiah and, all the, and a number of the prophets going all the way back to Abraham that the purpose of the people of God, the purpose of the covenant was to be a blessing to the whole world, not just to the Jewish nation. It was all through the scriptures. God's love was always going to go. It was just a question of when. But Peter, being Peter, took it a step further. I'm reading from Acts 15, 10 to 11. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. That's all the requirements of the law he's talking about. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now only Peter or maybe John could have said something like this. The movement was not a movement of the law of Moses. As we were being saved by the grace of my older brother, Jesus Christ. Paul and Barnabas told us more stories of their exploits, the marvellous things that God was doing by his spirit in Gentiles who had heard about the risen Jesus. And then slowly as they were talking, people started turning and looking at me. They were looking at the honest broker who both sides of the argument trusted. And I said this, well, I've reached the opinion that we should not trouble these Gentiles who are turning to God. But we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. This was me, the diplomat politician, trying to anticipate the qualms of our faithful Jewish Christians. I picked out the things about Jewish Gentile culture that I knew would particularly flick their switches. The sex parties, the um, food, that kind of stuff, the idols, 
Now, 15 years later, Paul has quite rightly written that there is nothing inherently wrong with eating meat that has been offered to idols. But I had a particular situation to manage as wisely as I could. We got through that crisis. A few years later, Paul returned to Jerusalem with money collected from the other churches. You see, we had a lot of poor then. We were suffering a great famine, and we were utterly delighted to receive that gift. And there were more stories of his mission to the Gentiles. That man was a machine. The issue, though, of what to do about the law of Moses had not gone away. In fact, there were rumours abounding that Paul was actively teaching Jewish believers to abandon circumcision, the food laws, and all that. And he may very well have been doing that. We said, Paul, we reckon what you should do is go observe the purity rites in the temple and just be seen to be doing that. And that'll take the sting out of these stories. Well, he did that, but it didn't go so well for him. At the end of his purity ritual, he was arrested. And last we heard... He's still under arrest in Rome. Look at the passage again. And think about it in the light of the story that I've just told. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have any bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but it's earthly and spiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those make peace do you think James lived a gentle life born of wisdom when I read Acts I think he's a star even though he's only mentioned a couple of times he wasn't a rock star he wasn't the lead guitarist that everyone admires he was the guy playing bass behind them who just kept the band together when it could easily have blown apart. Was he envious or selfishly ambitious? Well, he was Jesus' brother. And that would have counted for a lot in those days, probably a lot now. But he is happy, in that narrative I read out, to take his cues from Peter and to soothe the worried Jewish Christian brows. He knew, I think, that much of the controversy came from people trying to do the right thing. They'd been raised on the law of Moses and circumcision as mother's milk. But he also knew that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. For our faith to reach the ends of the earth, it had to grow out of its Jewish roots. And I think, or at least looking at what he did, it looks to me like he knew that and he understood that. Was he willing to yield? Well, yes. He took account of the scruples of those Jewish believers about not embracing all Gentile behaviour. Now, 
in more recent centuries, the Protestant way has been to split over the smallest items of truth. Here, James shows the wisdom, I think, of choosing very carefully the hills that you will die on. And hint, hint, it's not all of them. Compromise can be the wise and the godly thing to do in a particular situation. It's not always the black or white answer that is best. Was he a peacemaker? Well, yeah. He found a way to thread the needle between God's truth and people's feelings. Now, it won't always work, as it didn't when Paul was arrested, but, you know, you still try. But he, what he didn't do was to try to paper over the differences and say, oh, we're all good. No, he actually went into it. But he tried to steer a path through people that enabled most people to be able to stay in the tent. James was a wise leader of God's people. And in his letter, he's got a lot to say about wisdom. Someone to listen to. Not, I think, because he was the smartest kid on the block, but because he did the right and brave thing at the right time. He could have been a pope with his nous, his skills and his pedigree, but instead he was the wise and trusted honest broker that steered our faith through its first and I suspect its greatest crisis. James' wisdom is a wisdom of deeds, understanding and knowledge that reshapes life. From wise leadership comes true peace, in which we as God's people become whole and healthy and complete. What is called in the Bible shalom. That's my hope for us as Opawa Baptist. When I'm asked, so how's Opawa going? My, my stock line um, response as well, it's small but healthy. Healthy is real important. Big and unhealthy, not so good. But my hope for us here is that we as a faith community will continue to mature and know that peace. Our challenge will not be to blend Jewish and Gentile Christians into one community. That was the, the challenge of the faith in its first 200 years or so. Our challenge in this place, in this time, is to blend, look inside your um, newsletters at those photos, please. Open your newsletter. We're to blend Māori, Pacifica, Pakiha, and in this congregation, increasingly African. Old Baptists, and all the other tribes of Jesus. Middle New Zealand, working poor, and beneficiaries. This is an interesting place here. There is social housing, tons of it that way. The um, house, the, the two uh, three-bedroom townies over the road here sold for over 700,000. That um, noted little center of crime over there, the blue one, which um, the cops go to quite a bit. That's going to become five units. The three bedders will be 750 each. What an interesting mix of a suburb 
this place is turning into. And to be a safe, and we want to be, I think, a safe space for the people on the social margins to belong and to explore faith with us. I find it pretty exciting, Opawa 2.0. You who have been here a long time and have a real stake in this place, in this community, your challenge, I think, is to make space for the other. This was a mark of Jesus' ministry, and we need to do likewise. Now, if we can manage this, then we who meet here will look a lot like that, those pictures inside the um, newsletter and the ones I showed up before. If we don't, I may have the unfortunate honour of being your last pastor, and I don't want that. Do you? Let's pray. Lord, we commit our suburb, our community, the people who are here now and the people we get to come to you. Help us to be a place of acceptance, of inclusion, of grace, of love, of forgiveness, of every good virtue of yours. And in the process of that, Help us to be changed by them. To be people who are broader and more loving and more secure. And our Heavenly Father, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Musos, it's over to you. Uh, the final song we're singing is a, a, a wonderful song. There it is, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And for me, faithfulness is such a wonderful quality, and I guess God's got it in buckets. So I think the faithfulness is the foundation of the church, and maybe the foundation of our faith is God's faithfulness towards us. So let's all um, stand and sing about that. Thank you. <clears throat> Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not the compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, Great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faith.
truthfulness, mercy, and love. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow blessings all mine with ten thousand beside great is thy faithfulness Great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto going to close our service with a benediction. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favour and give you his peace. Have a good week. Thank you.